Welcome everybody to today's Around the Curve conversation at Brandywine Global. I am Katie Klingensman, and I am so pleased to be joined by two of our portfolio managers from the global equity team, Soren Roybu and Jim Clark. Well, I'm going to just start out with saying global equities have had quite the run of a lot of different factors, and I'm excited to hear a lot of the explanations around what's happening in the U.S. and around the world. Soren, just to get us started, what's been the general backdrop and the drivers of what's been happening in global equity markets? Thanks, Katie. I think it's fair to say that this year has turned out a lot different than most investors, including ourselves, uh, were expecting in the beginning of the year. I would say 2023 is characterized as a tug of war between that what inflation expectations, where inflation is going, and the monetary policy, uh, with, with the occasional flare-ups on the geopolitical front. The, the investors have been become, and, and the equity market have be, has become myopically focused on every short-term macro data to try and get, gain some insights into which direction is the global economy going. Now, what I would also say that U.S. economy was again at the forefront of, of macroeconomic prognosticators. You know, we started the year with, with, with I think, consensus expectations being that there's going to be a major slowdown, maybe even possible recession, sometimes starting in the second half. Uh, there was a group of people who expected a hard landing. Um, of course, that didn't happen. And what you, what you saw is, what you, what you witnessed is that the macroeconomic data kept coming in stronger than expected, but so did inflation. Uh, so we did, in, sitting here today, we did not have a recession. The economy held, held up a lot better than expected. If you look at the global equity markets performance in general, again, what you saw is this, uh, recovery in markets driven most mostly by multiple expansion. U.S. was a standout again, where uh, if you look at the U.S. performance, aside from the dollar being strong, it was a, a, a group of, we call it Magnificent Seven, a group of stocks, uh, more growthy uh, tech stocks that have led the performance responsible for most of the returns of the S&P 500, which again led, uh, led the, the, the world in terms of returns. Earnings growth expectations have come down for this year and have gotten pushed out for next year. So it's, um, it's one of those years where the bad things didn't happen, but things I can't say that things are, are great uh, where we are here today. We've been sensitive to all those data points because there really is a lot of uncertainty, right, about what's happening going forward. Well, so Jim, you guys invest globally and there has been a lot of attention in this concentrated story in the U.S. Uh, but tell me about what's been driving performance um, globally. Is it similarly concentrated? Yeah, it's been um, seven stocks, as Soren started saying, that people are calling the Magnificent Seven, have made up a good deal of the absolute performance that, that you see even in global markets. Uh, the U.S. is over 60% of a global benchmark, and these are big. Um, that said, it's been quite interesting that outside of the U.S., the other part of the benchmark, um, value has actually outperformed growth, um, which would surprise, I think, any any U.S.-centric portfolio manager this year. It's been very different. Interesting that there are such different trends, ex-U.S. and U.S. Well, just about those magnificent seven, What what is the story there? Uh, we're asked about this in just about every meeting we're go going into. Everybody has an opinion on them. And, you know, when whether it's BRICS or Magnificent Seven or Nifty 50, 50 years ago, or, you know, when these acronyms come out, it's usually not about something that's out of favor. It's usually something that's worked for years, that everybody loves, that everybody owns, then it gets its its snappy name, right? Um, that's not how typically to outperform in the future. 
which is what we care about, um, you know, buying the thing that everybody else already loves. Um, one other thing I would point out about these that is um, quite interesting to us um, is that the corresponding stocks in China that do essentially the same thing are some of the cheapest stocks in the world. And we as global investors, you know, you could buy something in the US to capture AI or you could buy something in China at five times earnings to capture a very similar trend in a different uh, country. Um, you know, when, when we're asked why or anybody asked why that is, well, it's because obviously there's this risk that China's going to blow up. But I find it curious that at least two, probably more of those Magnificent Seven, their entire supply chain is in China and Taiwan. So we look at the whole world and we just can't see how both of those things can be rational. And it'll be interesting next year how that plays out. Yeah, absolutely. I think back to the the axioms about how buying U.S. stocks is actually buying a lot of global exposure, given the names that are listed in the U.S. Lauren, you really gave us a flavor of this when you started the conversation talking about what's driving global equities right now. It seems like you know, there's a lot of the big picture macro factors that matter. This doesn't. This isn't usually the bread and butter of an equity team. Uh, just tell me a little bit about how you use macro in your approach. Sure. No, you know that's a good question because I think um, if I think if I think about investing, there's a group of investors who focus entirely on a bottom up and thinking that if they can just do high quality research on a company, they can just ignore the macro. And I think the difference is with us is that we believe that the value of the business is influenced by a variety of factors, macro factors uh, inclusive. So if you think about you know investing in a foreign country in foreign stock, you not only get exposure to that company's fundamentals, but you also will get exposure to whatever's going on in that particular economy. Uh, the currency that they're, they're operating in, what's happening at uh, uh, monetary level interest rates. So say so if you look to buy a bank in a country, you have to have an opinion about what the interest rate um, uh, is doing in a country or lending loan growth, you know, credit quality. So all those things are, are, are impacting the value of the business. We have 30 plus years of, of, of um, expert experience and expertise, but really making sense of the world, the macro world and, and guiding our fixed income portfolio managers into you know, what to do with, with the bond portfolios. We, we've concluded we, the, the, the strategy or the process that we implement is that we, be, we believe that those same macro uh, drivers also are important to the equity side of the, of the investment to, to those businesses. So, um, at, you know, that's, that's basically, we utilize the, the, the companies, the, the, the firm's macro research to really help us discern the macro trends around the world and actually position us to places and, and countries and regions and even businesses that will, they're positioned to benefit from macro catalysts. Now, if you flip it from the bottom-up standpoint, because we still do bottom-up research and that's, you know, Jim likes to say, you know, we, we, we have this kind of Adam Smith division of labor of let's let the macro team do what they're best at, what their, what their skills are meant for is to, to, to make sense of the macro world. We focus on what we do best, which is bottom-up research. And at that point, at that level, we, we're big believers that um, the value of a business is a function of return on capital, the profitability of that underlying business relative to cost of capital and how well um, uh, you know, for how long can, can that business reinvest in, in, in that particular company? And that's an important concept because I think that also differentiates us a little bit from a traditional value investors that are tend to be kind of all size, you know, fits all, low PE, low price to book. In our view, 
um, every valuation has to have a fundamental reasoning behind it. So just because something is low PE or low price to book does not necessarily mean um, it's undervalued. So this combination of, you know, going, finding the value pockets from the macro standpoint and com combining it with a, with a kind of uh, high quality bottom up uh, research, I think positions us well to navigate these, these markets. So you gave us a little bit of flavor at the beginning that uh, there are several macro trends that are really on your mind right now. What do you think is going to be most important for global equities? I do think that inflation remains, continues to, to be the critical near-term macro variable that really kind of drives markets and drives kind of thinking around what to do uh, in investment world. So, and that's because inflation impacts interest rates, currencies, profits, and stocks. So predicting the path of inflation has been very difficult as we as we've seen mostly due to the massive fiscal and monetary stimulus that we've 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 gotten through the covid uh, period but also supply disruption so i do think that going forward inflation getting inflation under control um and it's really targeting that inflation is going to be the driver the, the most important driver on a macro standpoint of course with that comes you know the secondary consequences or impact to the economy because the price for fighting inflation has been very high interest rates over a short period of time. So while we watch inflation as an important um, variable, we also are watching very closely what all this uh, uh, aggressive monetary policy, what has it done to the underlying economy? What's the uh, natural response from the consumer, from the economic growth um, you know, going forward as there, is, as there is a lag between monetary policy and impact on the economy? Jim, let's bring you in here. Uh, there's a lot of concern, consternation around the shape of the, the U.S. Treasury curve. Um, what do you make of that and, and how might that matter in terms of your equity strategy? Well, um, I, I would just point out that's the U.S. You know, we're talking about global investing and, you know, at the risk of, uh, you know, not answering a unknowable uh, question, which um you know, are the ones not to answer. If we don't have to, why not diversify around the world? And that's the way Soren and I think of it. So the U.S. certainly has an interest rate cycle, you know, with a past, present, and future. And that future part is the part we don't know yet, as Soren said. Um, Europe, it looks similar. You know, high inflation coming down. How far do rates go up? Sort of rhymes with what we're seeing here. Um, but Brazil doesn't. Uh, Brazil was a year ahead of, of the U.S. in um, raising rates, fighting inflation, and they seem to be winning that battle and have already started easing. Um, so in that sense, they're well ahead of, of um, economies that are more visible to most Americans. Um, Japan is in a completely different world where uh, they still have zero interest rates and it's coming out in its currency. Um, that's the, the outlet valve there. Um, and China, I would point out, has many issues, but inflation and rising interest rates are not, are not their issues. So being able to diversify different cycles around the world, um, you know, we think it's really important to not have to take an up or down bet on those kind of unknowable questions. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I, I would push a little bit on the inflation question, or maybe maybe really the point is a growth question, uh, when you do have the opportunity to gain exposure to different countries' stories. We do believe inflation is receding um, everywhere we look around the world. Um, you know, we're at peak uh, earlier in the year. 
the big question around inflation and, you know, to follow up on what what uh, my partner said, what, you know, the biggest questions in global investing going forward are going to be, does that stop at something like one to 2% to be convenient to everybody, or does it stop at three or four, which would be problematic? And it's very hard to know the, I mean, it's impossible to know the answer to that now, but identifying the question is sometimes what's very important. And that's, that's a big one going forward. Absolutely. Uh, and given that uncertainty, um, I know that you guys have done some pretty robust analysis of what historical trends suggest for the, the next page. Um, Soren, I know mid-year you were talking about uh, how the current uh, trends suggest that there actually could be better opportunities at the U.S. Tell us about that. Sure. Um, you know, I like to preface this with, I like preface this with by saying, um, one of my favorite sayings is to say that Alpha in investing is generated at the intersection of expectations and reality. And when you're dealing with an environment where there's just so much uncertainty, I mean, clearly, like the economic theory still hasn't figured out how to not only predict inflation, but to see how, which direction is going to go. I mean, this past year and a half is a great example of that. You would think by now, um, tracking it, uh, tracking inflation and, and finding ways to 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 tame it you, we would know, but it just proves to you that as economy evolves, as the industries change, as the makeup of the economies and industries changes with globalization, it's just it's just a kind of a moving moving target. So, in times like that, we like to invert, okay? Because making a forecast like that, it's foolish. It's it's hard to know. But you can you can look at the future as a range of outcomes and opportunities. But even better, how about let's let's invert and see what does the market tell us in terms of what's priced in. And when you look at that, so what's priced in versus expectations, it's clear to see that the valuation opportunity today, it's not in the United States, it's outside of US. If you look at the valuation ranges, where we are today versus the last 20, 25 years, US is somewhere in the middle to high, you know, upper range of that. Uh, Europe is towards the bottom, China's very low. Um, so. We, we, when we, we look at that, we can, we can immediately say, okay, the, that price risk versus information risk, what's priced in versus what's expected, you clearly are probably getting paid to take some of the risks outside of US and some regions like Jim mentioned, some, some particular stocks in China, uh, in Europe, you know, Latin America uh, versus being in US, given everything we know, given everything that's happened, that's been done on a monetary policy, and then, you know, contrasting that with valuations, the margin of safety is a lot lower if I would say, but in certain certain areas or the magnificent is non-existent where it doesn't take much for the market to be disappointed and then for the stock, to, you know, to underperform. So I know it's a long way to answer it. We, we like the, the the opportunities outside of US. The risk reward is, is set up is really attractive in China. It's not comfortable. There's a lot of negative sentiment. There are a lot of risk, but 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 I feel like we're getting paid in some some areas to 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 invest. And then Brazil is one one area where the central bank is already cutting rates. You're actually starting to see that in economic activity. The recent results from some from companies on the ground have have pointed to improved credit quality, increased economic activity. That all is a signal of the start of the next business cycle, which we like to to play into. And just to cap that off, it sounds like you see some interesting opportunities in China and Brazil. Any other countries or regions that you're excited about? Europe is one area where we are 
carefully um, involved. But when I say carefully, I'm qualifying that because it's not all in, Europe is fine, but it's a good balance between high quality uh, businesses that cyclical businesses that are down because the sentiment is negative with high quality multinationals that also serve, you know, they're, they're down because they're in Europe, but they're, they're fine. So um, I think Europe, we're just, we're just kind of carefully wading in and at some point it's going to be time to maybe in, increase that allocation. But yeah, I'd say Europe is the next, the next region that we're, we're involved in. Well, Jim, this gives me an excuse to ask you about geopolitics. I mean, companies are punished just because they're in Europe. How, how do you think about all of the different geopolitical events that are happening right now and sizing up opportunities and risks? Well, thank you, Katie, for a nice, easy one there. When, when, when your response is, which geopolitical crisis are you talking about? You know, you're in a an interesting year, and it's um, you know, it's happening in a number of places. The two most consequential to our investing are Europe and China. Um, and you know, to follow up on what Soren is saying about Europe, um, you can invest in Europe without investing in Europe. I mean, if you buy a multinational, um, you know company in many kinds of industries, you know, half their sales are in the US, 30% of their sales are in Europe, just just like any company with the same in the same business in the US. But those two companies today trade at very different valuations, because one is perceived as European. And one is one is perceived as, you know, holy because it's in the United States. Um, You know, two things should not two things that are identical should not be trading at different prices. And that's, you know, reason why value investing can work in the long run. Um, China's a different story where, yeah, I mean, China's risks are idiosyncratic. You have to, you know, you have to decide whether to um, place an investment literally in China. Um, But there, let's think about what the question should be there. And, you know, we get asked a lot, you know, don't you see the risk in China? Yeah, we see the risk in China that, you know, we can we can make a list of risks in China just like anyone else can. But the question for an investor is, are those risks priced in or not, or preferably overly priced in? Are we getting paid to take those risks? In the words of our founder, Tony Hitchler, investing is not about avoiding risk. It's about intelligently assuming risk. So when we look at China, we think it is way overdone. Yes, there is risk, but not nearly the probability that is reflected in uh, particularly um, Chinese technology stock prices. I am not talking about um, empty apartment buildings. I'm not talking about lenders to empty apartment buildings in China. We're talking about, you know, some of the highest quality technology companies in the world. So I think more about this in terms of the the U.S. and the European comparison. So it might not matter that much where a company is domiciled and listed. However, those uh, companies are going to have different currencies. Um, can you tell me how you think about currency analysis um, in your approach? We very much think about it as to where the company operates, not necessarily where the company is. So those two European and U.S. companies I described before would look very different on an attribution page. One would look like it's in euro, one in dollar, but their business may be in the exact same currencies where they have 50 percent in the U.S. and 30 percent in Europe, say. Um, what interests us the most in currencies today is Japan. And as a firm, um, you know, we have a view that the yen is considerably undervalued. Um, I've been there three times in the last 12 months. And I can tell you that if you went to Japan today, one of the first things you would notice would be, as an American, just how cheap everything is. Um, things cost 40% less than they'd cost in New York City, in Tokyo. And that is not normal. 
um, that's having an impact. Um, you know, that should create more demand for yen, less demand for dollars. People like me are going to Japan as tourists. You see very few Japanese tourists in New York City. So that's a, the self-correcting mechanism that, that our macro team often talks about that will correct these imbalances over the long term. But as investors, you know, we think it makes total sense to be buying businesses in Japan that are denominated in yen. I mean, local businesses where their costs are in yen, their, their revenues are in yen, their earnings are in yen, as opposed to some of the biggest Japanese companies, which are exporters, which have a very different relationship with the currency. So that's a perfect segue as we bring this all together and think about what could be uh, the most perhaps under-recognized risks and opportunities. And uh, Jim, I'll let you get us started with what you think as we close out this year and go into the next, um, looking at the global equity landscape, what do you think is the least appreciated risk? I think the big one in, in the biggest market, uh, the U.S., um, uh, started raising rates in the spring of 2022. It's been it's been sharp, it's been steep, it's been fast, but historically it has taken um, 18 months um, for the effects to be felt. So if you look at that time lag, you know you're lagging from the second, third, fourth rate cut today in late 2023, and you know we won't know this until we know it. But could there be something? really bad that hasn't happened yet. And you know, it's um that's how we're thinking about risk, especially uh, especially in um in markets that are on that rate cycle. Absolutely. And and Soren, the more optimistic question, where do you think there's a, an opportunity that's under recognized by markets? Uh, I think I'll, I'll echo back to what 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 Jim mentioned. If we look at the one region or part of the market that is significantly out of favor where the sentiment is negative, and I think you can act, you know, the, the old adage, ask a ta taxi driver, what are the risks in China? And I think everybody will tell you at least five. It's probably the, 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 the best known, you know, country and problems out there in the world. We think this is the one, one area, one region that is so out of so much out of favor, where the valuations are are reflecting such dire out, outcomes uh, that that it feels like that that China will never be able to do anything right again. And let's not forget that China still remains the largest manufacturer um, in, in the world. And with Jim and I, I like to 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 do this volleyball of of uh, of risk. So if you're worried about China, look at the top five to seven names uh, in, a, in, a, in our benchmark. A lot of those country, a lot of those companies have significant, not only business exposure to China, but product manufacturing supply chains in China. So, but when you compare the valuation, it's day and night. It's as if the same risk, which both would be impacted, is reflected significantly on the shares that are listed in China versus the one that are listed here. So the question we'd ask investors is, what if something went right in China over the next 12 to 18 months? Thank you very much, Jim um, Clark, uh, Soren Robo, for all of that insight into the global equity approach to the world and the latest risks and opportunities right now.